Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Floor 9. I'm your host, Ryan Miller, and today we'll be investigating the four trends shaping the future of media technology. Yep, you guessed it, it's our annual Outlook episode. For those of you unacquainted with the lab's Outlook, it's the lab's glimpse into the future. New technologies, market forces, and shifts in consumer behavior are driving change across the media landscape, and the Outlook captures those that are poised to break out over the next few years, why the lab is convinced that they're important, and how we think you should ultimately respond. With me, as always, is the author of the lab's 2022 Outlook, Embracing Entropy, Adam Simon. Adam, welcome. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for being here. Excited to talk to you about the Outlook. Well, thank you for imparting your infinite wisdom upon us with this uh, great piece of artistry. Uh, let's start at the very <laughs> beginning. It's a very good place to start the title, Embracing Entropy and uh, the Anthropocene. What does that mean? It's a very loaded title, and uh, I would love to turn to you to demystify it a bit. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, the past couple of years have been a little strange for writing the outlook because we normally try to look three to five years into the future, where we can sort of see the seeds of some changing consumer behaviors that maybe are starting to change and evolve with our early adopters and our innovators, but that we think are going to go mainstream, you know, a few years in the future. But because of the pandemic, that's really thrown a lot of this uh, prognosticating off. So we really do have to sort of back up and start from, uh, okay, what's going on right now? And which of those things do we think are still going to stick? We went through a lot of different titles. All of these sort of overarching themes really uh, came back to the idea that um, things are going to be chaotic for a little while. The new normal, if there is a new normal, is, is entropy, is chaos, is that things are going to keep changing. It's not like the pandemic happened and we're going to shift back to January of 2020, um, regardless as to you know, we can talk about timelines for how long we think um, we're going we're gonna to be going through waves of COVID. But the, the fact of the matter is that, that even after COVID calms down a little bit, there's still going to be ripples of other things happening. There's the uh, supply chain disruptions that are happening, and that's mm. caused by COVID, but it's going to extend for, for a while, probably two years after, after COVID, and possibly even longer than that. There's climate change uh, that's in the background, and we know that that is already in, in certain places, including in, in parts of the U.S., causing uh, a lot of disruptions itself. And then there's, uh, you know, the other thing I would throw in that bucket is the very divisive uh, politics of the, the, the era. And that's true here in the U.S., of course, but it's also true on a global stage. There's a lot politically that is happening. And these are like huge, giant issues, but they're also kind of just part of every issue because they're just part of the landscape of life in the 2020s. And we just think it's going to be a, a pretty turbulent time. I think pandemic is definitely the one that comes to the forefront when we're thinking about what's most prevalent in our day-to-day -day lives. But why don't you talk a little bit about hyper objects, the term coined by philosopher Timothy Morton, uh, just to load up on these huge terms for our viewers to get uh, familiar with. Yeah, uh, hyper objects is a term that, uh, was new to me last year and that I really like. Um, he was specifically using it to talk about climate change, but I think it can encompass a lot of the things that, that, that I just mentioned. Uh, and basically the idea is that there are things that are so big and that, that are operating on um, scales that are just hard for human brains to grasp. It's just, we're mm. not used to thinking about things um, on, uh, you know, climate change on the timescale that climate change is happening on for COVID and, and politics and the supply chain. It's more like we're not used to having to contemplate the really complicated interworkings of, of, uh, of you know, the global political system 
just when we're trying to like go out and get a cup of coffee and like deciding if that's a good idea or not. These huge ideas that impact your day-to-day life and that that uh, kind of have to impact your day-to-day life. And like, how do we grapple with those things? In some cases, it's very tempting to say, maybe I'll think about about it once a month or once every few months or something that, you know, I'll, I'll think about it really intensely and read up about it and, and, you know, maybe listen to some podcasts, watch the news and get smart about it. And then I'll like alter my worldview and I'll like come to this, you know, new mental model of how the world works. The problem is all of these things change constantly. It's not like one thing happens. It's not like there was a natural disaster and a bunch of things happened. And then, you know, there was a new world order on the other side of that. We're in a constant state of change with all of these things. And that's leading to this idea of policy drift, which is a term usually used mm. in politics. But I think it applies to things like, <laughs> like, am I going to the office today? Are the kids going to school today? Um, we're having this policy drift where we update our mental models. Like let's say right now we're in a surge because of Omicron. We're doing X, Y, Z. Here's, here's what we feel safe doing at our household. Here's what we don't feel safe doing. But you can't just update that mental model of what's safe and what's not once and be done. You're going to have to reevaluate. And, you know, maybe not every day, maybe every day is extreme, but every week, you know, <laughs> that doesn't seem uh, out of the question at this point. Another quote that I want to pull out is something that you alluded to from tech historian Jason Crawford that he said, it's almost impossible to predict the future, but it's also unnecessary because most people are living in the past. All you have to do is see the present before everyone else does. So what are the ways that we as consumers and brands more largely, how are we updating to these new models? How are we processing this information that is changing rapidly and daily? I really like that quote. I think it is an articulate version of what we had always tried to do with the outlook is tell people, here are the things that are changing and that are already happening today. Uh, and you don't have to worry about if they're going to happen in the future because they're already happening. We have proof of them happening. <laughs> and I think that when we think about these sort of larger hyper object size issues, they seem like these huge, big problems that as individuals and, and as brands that, you know, if you're sitting there as a, as a brand manager or a CMO, it seems like maybe that it, this isn't, it's like out of scope for what I'm, what I'm doing. But the reality is the consumers are really looking to brands and to corporations to address some of these issues and they're looking to you know support the brands that align with the solutions that they agree with and in some cases they're looking for them to provide solutions at all because there's uh, not easy you know guidance in terms of how to navigate the world you know i think uh, just to throw out one example there's a lot of uh, interesting political things that that follow in the wake of what apple does with their apple stores in different cities you can sort of follow mask mandates that kind of follow in the wake of apple saying we're keeping our stores open or we're closing our stores which i just think is really interesting because no one asked them to do that. They're not doing that in any official capacity, um, but they, you know, started proactively making decisions that were, you know, in the interest of their employees and their customers. And they ended up being a leader in the space. And how have these hyper objects influenced the way that consumers and brands and organizations are like are approaching these difficulties? Yeah. I mean, I think we were trying to find approachable ways in where, you know, a, a, a brand is not going to, uh, necessarily directly address the challenges of COVID. We have some examples of brands that are are taking leadership positions in terms of, of managing the pandemic, are filling some of the gaps uh, that, that our governments are, are being a little slow to fill. But I think that that's great examples of what a leadership position in one of these hyper objects type problems looks like. Um, but I think what we're, we're trying to do is 
help brands find those those ways in those places that they can make a difference, those places that consumers are asking them to make a difference. Offering those solutions can start to develop that relationship between the brand and the consumer over a really long time, over the, the course of a, of a consumer's entire life uh, that, that, you know, we're talking about huge time spans. So uh, why not talk about a human scale time span, which is our entire lives? Uh, and, uh, you know, think about how a brand's relationship with consumers, you know, varies and changes and evolves over that time. And also, you know, what what new technology and new media channels are offering new opportunities as, as points of connection and and then also the motivations behind some of those, uh, the, the moves into some of those new channels and why uh, there's so much buzz and interest around things like the metaverse and how that's tied into some of these big hyper objects, even though it, on the surface, it may not seem like it immediately is. I think it definitely is a, a response to some of these big problems that we're seeing. I think it's so interesting that you're talking about all these channels in which we're coming together and trying to solve these hyper objects problems and big organizations having a big role in that. But our first trend is power to the people. And I think this is kind of a build on democratized creativity, but even more so, um, we talked about being that beacon factor and organizations alone are not able to provide that sensation that we're looking for of that reprieve from all this external pressure. We're turning to the actual consumers themselves to help us co-create content and help us approach and solve these problems. So to help us with our uh, conversation of power to the people, we have Katie Geisreiter here as well. Katie, hello. Hello. Katie, why don't you tell me a little bit more about how this is built off of all of the anxiety we're feeling, all of these hyper objects and how the ineptitudes of our governments and organizations are making us feel. Is that is that where this trend ultimately is born out of? Yeah, I think it has. I think a lot of people have become kind of disillusioned by, to your point, the ineptitude of the government and instead are kind of turning to their communities, whether that's, uh, you know, an online community um, or their actual kind of physical geological community for support and for kind of power and the way that people have turned to communities on Reddit and on TikTok and all of these kind of niche things that people really care about and will find other like-minded people and kind of use that as support. In past years, we had talked about people retreating from public forums and diving deeper into these more niche subsections. What do you think is like the greatest organizing principle for that? Adam, do you think that the influence that we're seeing from these larger scale problems is driving people into respective communities? Or do you think it's more driven on a social basis? I mean, I think it is existentially part of the reactions to these larger problems. And I think it is a reaction to the traditional pillars of of power as not reacting or certainly not reacting fast enough to these problems, right? I think we see a lot of frustration with how slow many governments, including the US government, is moving on climate change. So I think it is frustration with institutions not moving as fast as the internet allows communities to move. Katie, you mentioned Reddit and other platforms like Discord, where these people are congregating to have an exchange of ideas, whether it be memes or those high-powered uh, hyper objects that we keep alluding to. But what do you think from a tool perspective and a tech perspective is enabling these people to actually have influence over action as opposed to just being able to participate in discourse? I mean, I think it is a really interesting thing that we're seeing within kind of like Web3 and DAOs where people are coming together and kind of taking their purchasing power to move towards a collective goal. So that goes beyond just 
a bunch of like-minded people saying the same thing on online, whether it's on Reddit or Discord or it is actually kind of taking your own purchasing power and using it as a collective group, which is really interesting. And beyond driving social action and a lot of this positive change that we keep referring to, what kind of good examples have you seen of, you know, restyling and things of that nature that have been brought on by brand inspiration? The adult swim kind of trend on TikTok, I really like to think from last year, basically, it started with one person filming someone walking through, I think, the Times Square subway station, and that person was dressed maybe like Spider-Man. And he put the adult swim music underneath it and it, it just fit absolutely perfectly. People really took this and ran with it. It's amazing to kind of see how these creators were reacting to just adult swim. Do we have any examples of, you know, brands or people or influencers replacing wholesale services that we had become accustomed to? And in terms of brands, like we just, with the vaccine rollout, we saw just brands doing various things to kind of incentivize, um, people to get vaccinated, like people just love to talk about Krispy Kreme offering the donuts to people that got the vaccine, but things like that, where, you know, it's not necessarily going so far as to mandate anything at at that point, trying to do what they could as a brand, specifically one that makes donuts to encourage people to get vaccinated and engage in kind of public health in that way. Beyond that, I think that's something else that we've seen that's really kind of interesting and troubling is the way that people are gravitating towards particular kind of celebrities, people like Elon Musk and Joe Rogan and Jeff Bezos and, and, you know, this kind of class of people who offer a very particular perspective, even if you're kind of fundamentally at odds with what they're saying, there is a certain power in um, just being decisive and having that very clear vision of the future. I think what this conversation has flushed out is, or as evidence is that there's a pretty sizable gap between people's faith in institutions and where it used to be. So how or what are the right steps that brands can take to assuage some of the fears that consumers have from engaging with their brands? Adam, do you have any insight from the front lines of how brands are combating this overall fear of what they might be interfering with on a consumer basis? I don't think that there is necessarily fear or on, on the brand side. I think that the opportunity is really around um, things like recognizing these grassroots movements that are happening, partnering with them where it makes sense, collaborating with them where it makes sense, and really starting to integrate them into your brand story. This doesn't mean that every single brand has to jump on every movement. It's like looking for where your existing fans and customers already are active and trying to engage with them on that level and then starting to figure out how that becomes part of your organically part of your brand. And you talked about in the outlook how bringing your own house to order is the first step in making sure that happens. Do you think that this is ultimately going to lead to a turnover in talent and some realignment in principles across, you know, brands and consumers themselves? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that, yes, that is definitely the first step is you need to make sure that as a brand, your values and your vision are clear and they're aligned not just with your internal leadership, but also, and and their values, but also with your business model. Um, So if those are, are out of alignment, or if you have never really had that conversation around values. I I think it is well past time to do that. Um, And yeah, that might result in uh, anything like that. If it is a change will result in some turnover of employees, some turnover of customers, but consumers are asking for this. Employees are also asking for this Um, and it will earn you 
new ones uh, in return. I think it more than outweighs the the risks and, and the short-term pain of, uh, of going through that process. And even though we are seeing evidence of this turnover, do you think that either you, Adam, or you, Katie, this is kind of in lockstep with how the way we're working is ultimately changing? We're seeing increased flexibility from companies like Spotify to allow their employees to work from anywhere at any time. Do we think that this is reflective of a greater work movement that we've seen over the course of the last two years as well? I definitely think it's it's tied into how we work. We are in a transition period where companies are going to decide how leadership of companies is going to decide how they want to work. Um, people are going to leave if they don't like that. And five years from now, we won't be talking about this nearly as much because most people will have moved or will have sort of forced changes at companies if they are, they're not seeing the change that they want. The how we work problem is going to continue to evolve, but is a relatively short-term uh, pain. But it is, you know, it is part of the whole package. It's it's the method of working is no longer a default. The values of a company are no longer a default. It's just all of these things that, uh, again, back to the, <laughs> the, the entropy, all these things that we used to sort of take for granted are things we can no longer take for granted. And we have to sit down and think about them and, and purposefully move forward with a, with a plan. And as we see evidence of the balance of power shifting back to the people, Katie, what what do you think is the right step for brands to empower their consumers and foster and develop an authentic relationship with the next generation of the community? Understanding what the values of your current consumers and who you want your consumers to be are like understanding what, what their values are and then understanding how helping them kind of meaningfully invest in those values and kind of showcase those values. Younger generations, and I know that we've talked about this already, but younger generations are so hyper-focused on supporting brands that align with their values and they can very kind of easily sniff out the bullshit behind a lot of what brands are saying, whether it's greenwashing or, you know, presenting themselves one way, but acting another in terms of their external marketing and, and their, the way that they, their internal culture. Um, so understanding kind of what they value um, and then being able to develop products beyond just kind of the marketing that align with those values. And lastly, you talk about the influence on the development of products. Do you think in this you know, future state that we're predicting with the outlook, you're going to be seeing more product design influence from the consumer, You know um, what they're saying in the public sphere? Or do you see brands actually turning to those consumers themselves to actually assist and facilitate in the development, production, and ultimate distribution of whatever the content asset might be? There's a beauty brand called Glow Recipe that has a kind of a group that I think it's an Instagram, like a private Instagram group where um, they turn to these hyper-engaged customers for kind of product feedback and to understand um, what they're looking for out of products. And that kind of direct communication with um, with their customers um, goes a long way in terms of understanding what their actual needs and wants are. Um, and then also ensuring that those same people will continue to be invested and kind of even like evangelize for the brand. Well, thank you for taking us through the evolution of the consumer relationship with brands and to further evolve on that and talk about how uh, the future of consumer relationships are shaping up and our second trend life cycle loyalty. We have Chelsea Freitas here with us. Chelsea, hello. Hello, Ryan. Just to dive in right away here with life cycle loyalty. 
what does that mean? Is it tied to brand loyalty and a redefinition of what that means? Is it to include this sustainability and climate change hyper object that we're talking about? Is it column A, column B? Break it down for us. You know, we've talked in the intro about embracing entropy, really our theme for this year. Life cycle loyalty is really a disruption to that traditional understanding of what it means to be loyal and what it means to offer loyalty to consumers. Brands can now create more stable and regulated communications and offerings, again, as we embrace this world of entropy um, and the chaos around us. So this is a time when, to no surprise, people have more choices than ever before. They were forced to try different brands, whether through necessity or through need over the last couple of years. And there's also less control over those key loyalty motivators that used to happen through in-person experiences. So really what life cycle loyalty means is that it's more important than ever to engage consumers throughout that post-purchase experience and really extend the life cycle of products and services. What is that right engagement cadence though? I, I think we've seen like, best practice examples in tech sectors with iPhones and their upgrade model and cars and returning that way. But how do we take those learnings and translate them into new territories like fashion and food that maybe have a shorter shelf life? That's a great question. And you're really hitting on a lot of different elements of life cycle loyalty. So it can mean a few different things. So whether it be software or service updates that increase the value of a product, like you mentioned, iPhone updates, for example, or you know what Tesla really pop- made popular, the over-the-air updates, or it can mean maximizing the product lifespan or incentivizing a sustainable end to a specific product in you know, categories like fashion or furniture, for example, or even through communication using data or media touch points to speak to people at various stages of that brand or product use or lifespan taking a very media-centric approach here, you touched on the magic word of data. What is the role of automation and machine learning in this process? I talked about that cadence that we would want to establish with the consumer. Is a computer just telling us what's right these days, or is there still kind of informed decision-making going on? I would like to believe it's always informed decision-making going on. But that said, you know, this is a world where we have more data and more access than ever before. And it's no longer about just driving someone to purchase that product or interact with your brand or that software, and then be hopeful that they're going to post on social or become a brand fan or brand advocate. It's really an opportunity to engage people throughout different touch points as we know more about them. Using data, we can make these interactions feel more personal, or we can even evolve a product or a service to better fit what that person needs at different stages. So for example, I'll talk about something that we touched on around CES. It was the Whirlpool Oven. So they actually rolled out an over-the-air update based on a cultural trend that they saw happening. So people are really evolving their expectations. They want products and tech that's going to meet their needs and that's going to keep up with culture because we know technology is now capable of that. So for example, the Whirlpool oven, uh, smart oven update, they're, they're rolling out an air fryer mode, seeing you know that air fryers are so popular in the culinary world. It's a really an important cultural viral trend, a lot of recipes in this space. They really want to keep up with demand and keep up with their evolving consumer. Um, so they're really, really striving for relevancy in this space by automatically rolling out that update. 
It also in turn is going to help people feel more comfortable and confident spending on those bigger ticket items, like a smart appliance, for example. Adam, you talked about the importance of being able to get up to speed with new models and information coming in constantly. Do you think that the deployment of these over-the-air updates are going to go a long way in helping to mitigate some of the discomfort we may experience when we're getting ourselves to speed? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if uh, over-the-air oven updates are going to really make me feel better about climate change, but <laughs> it does make me feel better about investing in that oven. Look, this is a model that is going to be new to a lot of industries, but it's really about bringing the software update model that we have in our computers, and our phones, and increasingly in our cars, and bringing that to other areas where we have a long-term relationship with the item. You know, the average appliance, I think, is upgraded every 13 years. You know, we'll see how Whirlpool does. If they're still offering software updates at year 10, I will say that they did a great job. But, <laughs> you know, some other players in the space have, have often fallen off after a few years. I think what consumers want is some kind of guarantee. Some phones do this, right? Some Android phones say we're going to guarantee software updates for X number of years. I don't see why appliances couldn't do the same thing. And just be upfront about it. Look, if it's going to be 10 years and the average replacement cycle is 13 years, you know at some point you might own the oven and it might stop getting updates, but at least you know that going in. You know, and if it's five years, then it's five years. Like that's that might suck, but at least you know. And I think that that is also part of this being upfront with the consumer about we expect you're going to have this product and it's going to have an active lifespan of about X number of years. I I really think that's a great point, Adam. Um, just to jump in here as we're thinking about it, like a lot of this already exists. We know that circular fashion is already so really, really important to the industry, but it's actually implementing that communication and that guarantee ahead of time to really make people feel comfortable investing in higher ticket items upfront, knowing that they're going to get a return on that investment later. And, you know, it's across various categories and trends, and it's really, really driven by this younger audience that doesn't want to necessarily buy into those fleeting trends. They want pieces that they can, that will grow with them, pieces that they can turn in and get more out of later, or even items that they can put their own creative spin on, like upcycling or thrift flipping in the fashion space. So we talked about those long-standing life cycles, such as you know appliances and cars. I want to dive a little bit more into the fashion example that you gave. How much of this is actually tied to like content creation with the recycling and restyling and upcycling and every one of those three R's and U's and whatever it might be? Um, is there a strong content hook to this as well? Absolutely. And we're seeing a lot of that happen at the influencer and creator level. We're going to see brands and companies have a really stronger voice in the space because we know the consumer mindset is there or it's trickling to that space. People are ready to invest, but now there's an opportunity to make it, to add a couple more things, right? It's education. It's how you make those things happen. It's continuing to make people feel more comfortable buying used and then it's also the evolving trend of like people really want that unique aesthetic. And when you look at something that's secondhand or vintage, it's going to continue to be more of a unique style or unique take for that consumer. So to that point, influencers really have a strong voice in this space right now from a content perspective. And I think brands are going to be the next ones to play in that space. 
What do you think is the best strategy for brands who are looking to develop a long-standing relationship or cradle-to-grave strategy with the consumer? Is it uh, about sending an email once a week? Is it about having interactive features on your products that allows you to reach out to the brand in ways that you haven't engaged before? Like what, what are the best practices? Make me smart. That's a great, yeah, that's a great question. And I think it really depends on what category we're talking about. There's a couple different ways into this. One could be maximizing the lifespan of a product. So either teaching people, educating consumers, giving those constant updates for them to better use and extend the life of their product. There's also integrating that new step after purchase, after use for a sustainable ending for a product. We've seen this already you know, across various categories where bring back five empty lipstick tubes to Mac and you can get one new lipstick free. I think we're going to see that be made much easier by brands. We've seen it, you know, Reformation puts a thread up selling envelope in their shipping materials. Right now it's happening with category leaders in the future. It's going to be table stakes for your brand. And then we've talked a little bit about personalized communication and services. The more we know how people are using their products, what life stage they're at, we're going to see brands um, be able to make a stronger impact with them in the future. So um, products and services that actually evolve and grow with you um, throughout that lifespan and that journey that you're using them. And I think we've woven throughout this narrative, the impact of sustainability and climate, climate change and how different industries are approaching those issues. But one thing that you just said in your last response is about supply chain disruption. Do we think that that is ultimately going to be a longstanding problem for life cycle loyalty, or is that just going to be an immediate hurdle that we have to overcome? So I think life cycle loyalty is actually going to be a response to the supply chain issues. We're going to see people have a stronger desire to recycle their products. And we're going to see brands making it easier than ever before to do so. Like we're even seeing it in the furniture space, like Ikea is implementing these types of programs. Um, There's even rental models that are just getting smarter for us to be able to use regenerative materials. I love it. It, it's just even more evidence that the people and brands are taking the action uh, required to actually make change at a large scale level. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Chelsea, for being here as we conclude part one of our 2022 Outlook conversation here on Floor 9. Coming to you next week, stay tuned for part two in which we go over the trends of multiplayer internet and the great escape. Until then, I'm Ryan Miller. Take care. Take care.